Hello everyone and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up on today's episode, we explore the future of guilt-free flying with British Airways Chief Executive Alex Cruz. Flying is never going to stop and flying from one place to the other is not a bad thing whatsoever. What is bad is to assume that the way that we've been flying over the last 100 years is the way that we should be flying over the next 100 years. We examine the role of offsetting travel emissions with climate care. To get to offsetting, you have to understand your environmental impact. And we see that people change their behaviour as a result of having that understanding. And we get under the skin of how a data-driven plastics cloud is combating ocean pollution. The initial launch of the plastics cloud was a kind of a call to the marketplace to say, look, we need to get serious now about this. We can no longer sort of work tactically individually We need to be working collaboratively, and data is the key. So yes, hello and welcome back to episode 72 of the Sustainable Business Cover podcast. I'm joined by ED reporter Sarah George, and Sarah, we're back in the quote-unquote studio for once. Yes, we are. It's been an extremely hectic um, September Um, A very busy calendar with the UN Climate Summit, Climate Strikes, Recycle Week, World Green Building Week and just that general back to school feeling that you get in September. um, Yeah, it's uh, it's just been really ramped up in terms of the workload uh, recently, a lot of news stories coming in, those those weeks that you mentioned provide a good scope for for organisations and businesses to talk about what they're up to basically and of course last week we were well, not last week two weeks ago we were out on about at the climate strikes uh, which is a real eye-opener for me I really felt like part of a collective um, which was quite surprised that I thought it'd be a case of show up um, interview people and go but it was uh, nice to be able to just absorb some of the atmosphere there um, and in fact since then uh, we've managed to get the rest of the staff at Faversham House uh, more engaged on climate change so after a few conversations I've had with both WWF and Bridget Jackson from PwC, who of course was on the podcast a couple of episodes ago, I kind of came to the decision that Fabulous House, which is the publishing company that owns ED, uh, should watch the Our Planet, Our Business documentary, um, which was launched following the success of Netflix's Our Planet um, documentary series, which I highly recommend as well. So last Friday, in fact, we all came up to the fourth floor, where we got the beanbags out and the sofas out, and we put the documentary on um, and... A lot of the staff, I think we probably had about 40, 50 people there, um, brought up their brought up their lunches. Sarah, you're in the audience with your meat-free lunch, um, and we did show it. What were your kind of key takeaways from that documentary? I'm going to be completely honest and confess that I did watch the documentary at home <laughs> myself beforehand, although I had it on sort of in the background mm. while I was pottering around the house. So this gave me a proper chance to sit down and think about it in the context of, of business. Um, what I took away from it mainly was that there's the climate strikes are sort of calling on businesses to do more about climate change and governments to do the same um the key takeaway i took from that film was that this can't be done without consideration for nature Mm. and biodiversity as well and not to be afraid to take positive actions that might have an impact in other spaces than carbon um, yeah yeah i definitely agree biodiversity is kind of having its moment in the sun right now isn't it i think a lot of 
Um, not just a lot of reports and businesses understand the role, but you know you see the political parties with the with the tree planting campaigns and the, the restor- restorative approaches to habitats in general. Um, yeah. It, yeah, so it's it's something that I think traditionally was perhaps a bit fluffy. The whole idea of yeah, well plant a few trees or put a few green walls up around yeah, the office. Yeah, look at but this picture of a baby orangutan. Yeah. Let it change your business model. Exactly, but actually, you know, it's starting to, to have an impact, which is uh, which is great. And and for those of you listening that perhaps want to know more about the the episode um, and the documentary, there will be a link at the bottom of the article accompanying this episode if you want to watch it. Um, and for me, it really got me thinking about my actions and how I can be um, more sustainable. And I came up with all these ideas about how I can purchase, you know, less single-use plastics certainly like um, fizzy drinks uh, bottles for example and how I can think more about the uh, the brands I buy from um, but there's there's one area in particular there's a lot of debate happening right now around how sustainable it is and that that's flying and whether it's kind of for a different reason than sustainability with the collapse of kind of Thomas Cook you've got Prince Harry and Meghan Markle that are getting absolutely canned by the media for their for their flying habits despite the fact that they're kind of championing this climate crisis message and that we need to combat it seems clear that you know aviation is one of those few sectors that is going to struggle to become kind of one planet compatible in the in the future um sarah you're a bit closer to the to the news and i suppose the the facts and the trends uh, than i am so so you know i'm sure most of us know but for everyone else, what's the what's the main concern around flying in relation to climate change? Okay, so you talked a bit there about some of the more high-profile cases that have been in the media, namely Prince Harry and Meghan Markle launching this climate action campaign after flying to see Sir Elton John on a private jet, to which Sir Elton sort of stuck his middle finger up and said, I'm offsetting the emissions, mind your business. Mm. Um, and this has actually been building for, for quite some some time, albeit outside of the UK. So across mainland Europe, this flight shaming movement has been rattling on for a few years now. And Greta Thunberg's decision to um, attend everything that she goes to without flying, including um, making a transatlantic trip, um, has really brought that to the, to the fore. Um, and all of this has sort of culminated in the government asking the Committee on Climate Change where do aviation and shipping fit into our new 2050 net mm-hmm. zero target? The 2008 Climate Change Act famously excludes them, saying, well, they don't ha- the emissions don't happen domestically and because they might be crossing waters and borders, where can we account for them? We simply can't include them. Um, The Committee on Climate Change's advice is that they should be included Mm. um, in the drive for net zero and crucial thing that I took away from that CCC advice paper which I have written about on the site if you wanted to read a bit more in depth about what it's recommending. um, It does basically say that airport capacity expansions need to be capped um, and that the number of flights taken by British citizens and those visiting the UK need to be capped. Mm, which is essentially. Uh, in direct contrast of what um, the UK seems to be doing, especially with the Heathrow expansion. In fact, the Heathrow uh, CEO, uh, John Holland Kay, um, there's an exclusive from him up on our website right now about his visions and how he feels the sector can reach um, net zero um, and the need for a deal on that as soon mm. as possible, which is you know, interesting. I think Heathrow get a lot of, you know, correctly criticised press around the expansion but I think a lot of people ignore the fact that their 2.0 plan does account for carbon neutral growth whether that's delivered is is another aspect but yeah yeah, clearly we're at this weird kind of tipping point where the demand for flying seems to be 
on the up, but the need to reduce its impact um, is is there as well. Yeah. So it's the tech emergence has been slow as well. Yeah. And just one quick point on the growth, like Lord Deben's advice said, like, oh, capacity growth, Heathrow isn't incompatible, is what mm. we're saying. Um, but it means that if any other airports want to grow outside of London, it's not going to be happening. So it's furthering that economic sustainability divide between the north and south. Yeah, exactly that. And then you mentioned the technology aspect, and that's not to say that businesses aren't attempting to kind of tap into into those technological solutions. Perhaps not exactly short-term solutions, but, you know, um, this episode is about the future of flying. And, and Sarah, I think it's time we get on with the first interview, or the first interviews, I should say, for this episode. So... Uh, why don't you tell me who we are speaking to and why? Yes, I've been rattling on about the context. I am going somewhere with this, <laughs> I promise. Um, so where I'm going with this is that over the summer, British Airways has been um, hosting this campaign called Future of Flight. Um, so it consisted of a exhibit at the Saatchi Gallery in London um, and a report and a series of investments into small, sustainable startups, basically uh, showcasing based on its own research, how commercial flying could change over the next 100 years. So a lot of this was looking at passenger experience. Do we want to talk to each other on planes? Um, how do we want to board planes? What do we want to eat on our planes? How will we be getting our luggage from one place to another? Um, but a lot of it obviously was focused on decarbonisation mm. as well. So to sort of get under the skin of this future flight campaign from both angles, so that's from the startup angle and from the British Airways angle, so I went along to the Sarcher Gallery to check out the exhibit and meet the two postgraduate students who are behind one of the concepts there called Arium. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a algae plane concept. Interesting. Uh, so a plane made of algae. Not necessarily. Right, okay, that seems a bit <laughs> Due lightweight. To air, air pressure up there and things, you know, Matt. Um, it's written about in our Innovations of the Week, so you can have a look there for more, more in-depth. But just imagine this skeleton wrapped around your existing plane that has pockets of chloroplast de- derived from algae. Chloroplasts are the bits of a plant that enable it to photosynthesise um, and therefore would enable onboard generation of energy and oxygen. Um, okay. It's also biomimicry design with um, water harvesting in mind as well. So the first of these two future of flight interviews is with the team behind that concept, Hanson Chen and Juliet Ellis-Brown, who are both postgraduate students in London. Okay, great. Um, and then we got the opportunity to talk to BA, uh, BA CEO Alex Cruz to get their side of the story. Um, talking about the benefits of a large business partnering with students and investing in small innovations and about um, how much BA and other airlines like it are betting on these innovations compared to tech that might be available sooner. Okay, great stuff. Uh, uh, CEO of a big corporate on the podcast, always exciting stuff. and of course, the uh, the concept um, from from Hanson and Julian sounds extremely interesting as well. So let's hear those interviews in full, and then why not join us for part two, uh, where we discuss offsets for travel with uh, an ED partner, Climate Care. So for this part of the podcast, we are doing something a little bit different than sitting in our makeshift studio in East Grinstead, in that I am in the gardens at the Saatchi Gallery of London after a whistle-stop tour of what's being described as a the flight of the future, um, what our passenger planes might look like in the year 2119. 
almost unfathomable considering that none of us will be around there um, and stepping into this exhibit which is is free if you guys would like to check it out for yourselves it's a big white room um, with in the center what I can only describe as as a white dome made of what looks like wooden bones where you can sit in the middle plug into VR and experience the full experience of of the flight of the future everything taken in from where you're sitting what you'll be eating what what it'll smell like how your luggage will be packed and the reason we care um, how it will be powered where the energy comes from how efficient it is and whether it's compatible with a net zero future um, and I'm here with two of the people that have envisioned that future um, with what describes itself as an algae-powered aircraft called Arium. Um, so this was designed by students at the RCA at London who have been kind enough to join me today. I've got Julian Ellis-Brown and Hanson Chang who have been working um, on this project tirelessly to, to grow Chloroplus in the shape of the BA logo. Um, and to make a, a real part of a plain, plain fuselage. So th thank you both so much for joining me today. Um, yeah, so I could sit here and try and explain this concept to everyone, but I think you guys could do it better. So could you briefly tell us about Arium, how it works, what, what it looks like and, and what it does? So we've been exploring how um, one day we might use biological systems um, alongside and maybe eventually instead of electromechanical systems which you currently have um, for a sort of generating energy and um, some other tasks on board um, and to, in a sort of descriptive manner I guess it will seem um, we envisage a fuselage which is now a kind of matrix of a generative structure which um, looks like bone growth mm -hmm. uh, uh, around the cabin. And within these are pods of um, what's called synthetic chloroplasts, chloroplasts which are outside of their original organic cell, which will be able to photosynthesize and um, generate energy for those on board. But in addition, um, as part of that photosynthesis process, we'll um, be recycling the exhaled carbon dioxide on board from the passengers and um, sort of be filtering and cleaning the air uh, which reduces the need for a heavy air conditioning system mm -hmm. on board as well so saving a bit of weight there um, yeah and on the exterior of the plane we're inspired um, by this Nambian desert beetle um, on biomimicry and how it kind of channels water through um, to the lip of its mouth and um, how we can kind of collect condensation from clouds and filter into permeable sections of the plane for onboard and possibly offboard use. Um, and together, these systems um, kind of seem like a generative uh, or performative skin on mm -hmm. the top of the fuselage of the plane. Um, it's green. <laughs> it's very sexy, I would say. It's very futuristic. It's it very feels futuristic. like you're inside a leaf. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good description. That's the, um, yeah. But the idea is that with kind of currently planes are, um, when they're inactive, they're not um, generating any energy. Mm. But um, with this kind of future performative skin, um, when they're parked at the airports, they could, you know, recharge 
using the skin for their use and then also feed it back to the feedback energy and water back to the airport so kind of have this symbiotic relationship with airports and urban infrastructure mm. which is a relationship that currently does not exist mm. so eventually it could be a plane that gives back more to the airport than it actually takes yeah. out making yeah. it really resource efficient and a lot of what you've you've mentioned there about um, about algae boosted photosynthesis and air conditioning they're all listed on um, I don't know if you were aware of Project Drawdown, the list of 100 climate solutions, but coolants, sustainable coolants, is actually the most impactful solution, according to them. So this was just really interesting yeah. to look at. But obviously it's being exhibited here because of British Airways, um, who are looking at the year 2119 as, as a sort of play on a flight number <laughs> or a plane number. So how did BA get involved in... In, in your project and how's that relationship been working? So they approached the Royal College of Art and sort of um, and after commissioning um, a company called the Foresight Factory to look at the next hundred years of flight um, of which they interviewed thousands of people worldwide to start bringing up this, uh, this sort of um, document of what the future of flight might look like. After that British Airways approached the Royal College of Art the, uh, the School of Design specifically um, and um, alongside us and around 40 postgraduate students um, wanted us to sort of start to visualise and conceptualise all sorts of different directions that this might be. Cool and how heavily was were they involved with what you were up to? Well we had uh, critiques regularly to kind of show our concept and get feedback from them as well as industry professionals, so people from Airbus came, um, Autodesk. Autodesk came um, to kind of help us along this process because none of us are, you know, aeronautics engineer mm -hmm. or designers in any way, but um, to kind of help us push the concept further. Uh, yeah. 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 yeah well, they were fantastic um, getting all the, these industry, and we had we had a lot of support from from these professionals and the. Um, crits that we went through um, really beneficial sort of honing our concept down mm. at the end and I think it's resulted in an excellent exhibition. Yeah, no when you look inside it does look futuristic but not to the point as though this really exists in isolation I can't ever see this happening in the next hundred years um, which brings me t to ask the big question really which is what what future do you see for for Arium? So this is looking at a hundred year time frame and yeah. the entire world so yeah. To narrow it down for your I your would, innovation, I would say for Arium, I think we're looking about fifty years. I, down. I think I think we can be a bit more optimistic than that. I think thirty. I think, to 50? I think thirty. 30, I think, to thirty. Okay. Yeah, because I think when we first started this process, um, and we we're thinking about these sort of biological systems, and we and um, and we thought, well, you know, this is uh, this is this is a little bit out there. But yeah. then the more we spoke to um, industry experts within synthetic biology um, and biodesign, a lot of these technologies are like on the brink. And mm -hmm. synthetic biology is one of the fastest developing um, technologies at yeah. the moment. I feel like every yeah. week we see a news headline about your stakes will be 3D printed. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so, I mean, it's a little bit out there, but all the ideas are kind of based off of existing research or papers we've read and developments that are currently happening. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think it's possible. Mm. Yeah. And on a yeah. survey of 13,000 people, so presumably people would 
like to fly in something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think people are start, uh, will start to become in the next sort of like five, ten years more comfortable with the idea of sort of domestic biological systems like around them to yeah. be able to sort of support and enhance their like day-to-day -day lives. Mm -hmm. And do you think that's just due to technology coming online and getting cheaper or also because of the climate news that we're seeing at the moment? Absolutely, I think it's that definitely is part of the climate. Yeah, there's um, a huge issue. demand for it at the moment for sort of sustainable alternatives and, um, and biological systems haven't been tapped into hugely in that domain quite yet. I think it's, we're going to get more and more of that. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to take another quick look around the gallery and then, um, although he can't be here today, um, I will be doing a separate recording to follow on with this with British Airways Chief Executive um, to hear sort of the other side of the sustainable flying story. But thank you both of you for joining me on the podcast. Thank, thank you very much. Great. So as I mentioned, um, Alex, the CEO at BA, sadly couldn't be at the Saatchi on the day that I was there. But I am back here in Edie's makeshift podcast studio and he has been kind enough to take some time out of his busy schedule to join us on the phone. How are you doing, Alex? Very well. Thank you very much, Sarah. Great. Um, yeah, so just looking around the exhibit, really, the thing that you can tell is that it tells a story, a story of how aviation is going to evolve over the next hundred years. Um, that's both in terms of sustainability and customer experience as as well. Um, so I just wanted to get a, an eye on sort of what inspired you guys to start research into that, and did you expect some of these results that you got on on sustainability? So the survey was with thirteen thousand people across ten countries, um, and almost half of them, forty three percent, said that they would pay more for an eco friendly flight, and that's not in the future. That's that's today. Um, so did you expect that and what, what got that research going in the first instance? Right, so uh, to start from the beginning, uh, this year it's our 100th uh, anniversary. So we thought about uh, all throughout last year when we were 99, uh, what are the kinds of things that we wanted to do, uh, not only just to celebrate, but perhaps to uh, plant a flag and to begin to think about what our involvement should be around uh, a number of topics. And at the end, we loosely decided that we would spend about a third of our time celebrating the history of British Airways. And uh, we've done a lot of things and probably a few things left over before the end of the year to celebrate those 100 years of, of history of the airline flying around the world uh, and the airplanes and everything else. But we were very keen on dedicating the lion's share of our time thinking about the future. And uh, for us, the future were, was many things. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, the flight of the future, what should that passenger experience be in the future? Um, the people of the future, so we're definitely spending time on the careers of the future in the company. But one of the uh, areas that it was like an obvious uh, conclusion for uh, all the teams involved was that we needed to understand what the role of aviation, and particularly British Airways within aviation, had to be on everything related to the environment. Mm. Now, BA is not uh, a company that has uh, been uh, quiet or inactive around uh, uh, everything related to CO2 emissions and such. And you know, I could give you a long list of things that we've been doing uh, since 2000, uh, uh, late 2000, and we've been the first, uh, there are a number of things. But what we wanted to do is to discuss and think about what we could do in the future. So really, two angles. One was the initiative Fuels of the Future, where we initiated a competition uh, between uh, UK universities to try to 
understand how we could send 300 passengers on a five-hour flight with zero emissions. Mm. Uh, quite a big goal on itself. And uh, we received uh, a number of responses, and at the end we have three um, uh, um, uh, winners, and one particular winner from UCL. And it was all, in this particular case, around fuels and how we could create and manufacture fuels, biofuels, using household uh, refuse and what the logistics around that uh, was. This is a topic that's very close to our hearts. We are investing in a plant uh, southeast uh, of Leeds that will precisely will do that in conjunction with, with Shell. But we also thought, when we look at the future passenger experience, uh, we thought that we needed to, uh, first of all, understand what is in our consumers, our passengers, uh, our customers' minds with regards to travel by air in the future. And that's what the survey that you're making reference to um, tried and attempted to respond. And yes, uh, uh, some of the surprises, uh, some of the responses were surprising. 43% of people prepared to pay more for a flight if it was eco-friendly. 45% of people saying that they would choose a slower uh, flight mm -hmm. if it was a greener option. Uh, six in ten uh, consumers saying that they're concerned about what they can personally do to help uh, to protect the uh, environment. And many other topics about electricity, power in airplanes, of course, alternative fuels, et cetera, et cetera. This uh, output was given to the Royal College of Arts that got together with uh, futurologists and designers, et cetera, and the exhibition is the output. And to me, personally, what I found absolutely fascinating was that every single one of the projects that was submitted uh, had an eco-angle to it. It had an environment angle to it. It's no one actually articulated any solution that didn't speak about the impact of the environment or was directly uh, ad addressing uh, 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 the environment. And that was, that was on its own, was, it was an incredible lesson. So the exhibit that uh, was uh, discussed about the uh, airplanes uh, made of algae and processing and generating uh, electricity on board, uh, fantastic uh, uh, coverage. And a lot of people really caught up on it, uh, looking at it. Beyond that was about how to make uh, uh, travel uh, more light, uh, how about to travel uh, ideas on traveling slower? So just like mm -hmm. the survey had suggested, we had a team that uh, spoke about how actually flying could be uh, achieved without uh, big turbine engines uh, on these metal tubes and actually in other alternative ways, which may get you there longer, but the flights could be completely emissions free. So the this all started to summarize with our ambition to celebrate our 100th anniversary and to put an emphasis on the future and within the future to talk to talk not just about a sustainable future which we believe is an integral component of flying in the future but also to take a look at how we could fly and within that um, what were some of the influences and clearly the environment uh, has been the single most uh, and biggest influence in the design of that future of travel. Mm. No, and you mentioned there one of BA's big focus areas in the future is is this fuels piece, which we've covered a lot actually in written pieces on, on the website. Um, but also another big thing that was focused in on in the report, this is a sort of two-pronged approach, also with electrification and lightweighting. 
Um, so I was wondering if you could give more of an insight on what you guys are up to in in the electric field because we've covered a lot of um, a lot of what's going on in the low carbon or recycled and innovative fuel space already. Yeah, I, I think we we have to start by uh, stating that uh, there is no we don't believe that there's a silver bullet uh, for actually uh, addressing. Uh, the 2% uh, CO2 emissions uh, that uh, aviation uh, uh, generates. That there's multi- there have to be multiple approaches. Uh, that there have to be multiple partnerships by many of the players that are that are playing. And like you mentioned, we have chosen to partner uh, with Shell and with Velocis uh, uh, around the sustainable aviation fuel project. Uh, that's tangible. You can see it. You can touch it. We can test it. Uh, it's very, very, very specific. And you will see us spending quite a bit of time on that because it will uh, address uh, an issue using today's technology. If we can get those biofuels manufactured quickly in volumes, the current engines will be able to consume them. And that's of tremendous interest as uh, an interim step to move on to new technologies like uh, electric. At this particular point in time, we are... uh, going through the conclusions and the feedback and the inputs that we've received from uh, many entities that have gone through the exhibition uh, to try to see what are some of the other tangible projects that we could get involved in. And you've mentioned one of them, and that's uh, electricity as a way to Mm. power uh, airplanes. We are uh, very aware of efforts ongoing at the moment in Norway. Um, And uh, we do believe that the first steps towards small aircraft in shorter distances are going to be conquered very, very, very soon. And I'm talking sort of eight, uh, 10 maybe uh, passengers uh, plus uh, two pilots in uh, distances under 500 miles. That's something that we should be seeing uh, as alternative options in certain parts of the world as they continue investing on the area, on, on this particular area. Of course, we're distracted by 300 passengers in the air for five hours. <laughs> and we are interested on uh, facilitating the space for people to do research, um, for uh, academics and or other organizations to do testing, for us to provide data uh, that will enable studying how electrical propulsion uh, could actually take place. We have informalized that into a project. I think we, we want to put together all the feedback that, that we're receiving again from the exhibition. Uh, but it is a, definitely an area of, of interest. We're not prepared yet to commit on something on the electrical uh, propulsion. We are completely committed on sustainable fuels. But uh, look, if there are clearly some organizations that want to take this further, we have incredible amounts of data that we can share. There's a lot of energy in the company right now to, to get involved in projects like this. No, I can imagine. And I'll keep an eye out for that on the future, as I'm sure will a lot of people um, in this space. Um, but the last thing I wanted to ask, really, so we've covered there the two, you said about a multi-pronged uh, approach, and the big prongs are obviously electrification and new fuels. Um, so w- what attracted BA to, to the algae plane? It's a bit, it's a bit more futuristic, um, it's biomimicry, it's a bit more out there, um, really. So I was just interested in sort of what attracted you to that and where, where that could fit in the multi-pronged approach as well. Yeah, I think that the uh, inspiration that we have all received from the exhibition and from the great work of the RCA uh, students um, keeps in mind a a timeline of 100 years. Mm. And when you went to the exhibition, you saw some things where you could conceive, you could begin to conceive that within a few years, 
could be done, some of the 3D printed food, some of the baggage things that we were discussing, certainly a lot of the data-driven uh, customization on board and all those kinds, of, you, you can perceive of them. The algae project, the slow flying, there's some others, you can definitely see them. There's no doubt about it. But when you look at the technology gap between where we are today and where we need to be in order, in order to be able to deliver it, you kind of tend to think that it's going to be a longer project. So I think that what we feel our role is, is to be there to facilitate the evolution of as many of these projects as possible. What we know is we have access to unlimited amount of information and data of, on the challenge. What is the challenge in terms of being able to transport so much weight from one place to the other and all the logistics around it? And we have, uh, you know, the majority of, of our staff, everyone that we, knew, that, that we hire nowadays, but the majority of the staff are absolutely aligned uh, these sort of projects. So I can't really tell you where our involvement is going to be on the algae airplane. What we are absolutely committed to is to continue to form partnerships with people who are uh, going to be able to use the data that we have and some of the resources that we have to be able to take that technology further. I don't know uh, if I will be able to go on an algae airplane myself. Uh, I'm 53. Uh, maybe. I don't know. I hope so. But I know that there's a number of tangible ideas that came out of the exhibition that we may be able to support uh, earlier uh, whilst that really game-changing technology is being delivered uh, and developed. So I guess the underlying, uh, the, the, the underlying thought is we've been there all along a couple of different projects. We used the platform of BA100, our 100th anniversary, to stimulate even more potential platforms and we're going to try to pursue some of them as we find different partners that uh, might be willing uh, to, to or, or really enthusiastic about uh, working on this area. Uh, we have committed 200 million uh, pounds over the next uh, 20 years. And, uh, you know, there's an absolute place to be able to spend that money earlier if we see uh, some of these initiatives with an, a closer in impact. I think it's, we're there. Uh, that's what we do in and out, transport passengers, and we'd like to have a role in that when we look at the future. We, uh, flying is never going to stop, and flying from one place to the other is not a bad thing whatsoever. What is bad is to assume that the way that we've been flying over the last 100 years is the way that we should be flying over the next 100 years. That is not acceptable. And we want to be there because we want to be able to lead in the change of sustainable flying. Well, I'll look forward to seeing what's coming out over the next few years. But um, in the meantime, thank you so much for taking the time out to be on the podcast, Alex. Great. Thank you so much, Sarah. So hello and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. So we've already discussed the future of flying um, and I think it's fair to say that um, planes wrapped in algae is some way uh, off, um, excited nonetheless, but in the short term there are a few potential um, ways to reduce your environmental impact of your travelling and that's not just flying, that's, uh, that's you know... Uh, road transport as well. Um, one option is obviously just to travel less. I think flexible working, video conferences, even you know car sharing is all there. It makes it possible to do that. Um, 
based on you know how far you have to travel and who you can travel with and number two is is probably offsetting um a word that has kind of had a tinge of controversy around it it used to be the kind of um seen as a bit of an excuse really that you could offset and not have to do your kind of due diligence to the environment if you're a business it's now i think getting the realization that actually for the unavoidable emissions it's it's an it's necessary and actually does have benefits across the globe especially in developing countries um and at ed ourselves you know we um we host a lot of conferences uh, which see expert speakers from all over the country gather to discuss the key trends on the sustainable business agenda in fact our sustainability leaders forum at the business design center on the 4th and 5th of february next year features speakers like Mary Robinson, the former president of Ireland, uh, Rebecca Marmot, Unilever's CSO, um, Tom Zaki from TerraCycle, Gilbert Gostin, who's Furminature's CEO, and a load of directors and senior managers from a host of huge companies. Um, that was a shameless plug, but I'm going somewhere of, uh, with it. Um, all those people kind of converging to one location has a, you know, it has an environmental impact. It has a cost associated with it. And we're ED, we're, we're trying to walk the sustainability talk, so to speak. Um, and we've had a long running partnership with the carbon offsetting organisation Climate Care, uh, which means that carbon emissions associated with speaker and delegate travel to all of ED's sustainability conferences are offset, um, provided that the delegates fill out the, the relevant information of you know how they got there, um, how far they travelled. Um, a few years ago, for example, this partnership helped uh, support Climate Cares, and I have no idea if I'm going to pronounce this right, Gaiapa Stowe's project. So um, essentially through the offsetting um, at conferences, we helped improve the lives of 450 people in Ghana through the offset of 100 tonnes of carbon through uh, clean cooking stoves. And so to discuss that a little bit more and, and you know, to keep with the theme of, of traveling and how you know we can be more environmentally conscious about our travels. Uh, joining us live right now is Climate Care's Head of Corporate Partnerships, Rob Stevens. Um, I believe, Sarah, you've got a few questions lined up for Rob about how offsetting is a crucial part in the battle to decarbonise transport. Yes, so the first and most important question to ask anyone that comes in on the podcast is, Rob, how are you doing and um, where are you? whereabouts are you today? Where are we calling you at? Hi Sarah, um, I'm very well, thank you. Um, I am in Climate Care's head office, which is in Oxford in the UK. Um, and yeah, I'm very pleased to be here. No, fantastic. So Matt's done a good job there of introducing Climate Care and what it does in the transport space and specifically what's that, that has looked for, like for Faversham House, Edie's, Edie's publisher. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit more um, about about the work it it does and how this can can work. So I had a look on the website, um, and it describes offsetting as a way to take full responsibility for residual emissions. Um, but you guys are still encouraging businesses to do carbon reduction work before that or alongside offsetting as well. And we were talking about how this is basically we think a, a misconception that people might have about offsetting. And I wanted to to ask you about um, about that really, first of all. Yeah, sure. So I think, uh, I think it's important to contextualize offsetting um, as we see it. And this, this kind of applies to flying as well as any other um, activity that either as an individual or a company um, you carry out. So we, we always speak about um, a hierarchy of actions, essentially. Um, and firstly, um, as you would expect, they, you know, the from a climate perspective, the best thing to do 
in the first place is to avoid that activity, whatever it might be. Um, in, in this case, if we're talking about flying, you know, avoiding a flight and just uh, you know, seeing whether you can um, you have to take that flight or whether there are lower carbon alternatives. Um, you know, from our point of view, um, once you have um, taken the uh, decision to take a flight for whatever reason that might be, um, then you know the next best thing is to is to offset that flight, and um, we want to be very clear that offsetting the flight is not the same as not taking it in the first place, um, but um, once you've made that decision, then offsetting it um, provides you with an opportunity to take responsibility for those emissions. Uh, we don't have any uh, evidence at all from any of our companies or, or individuals that um, because they can offset the flight, it, it's, it, it's enabling them to, to carry on as usual. In fact, what, what we see is that offsetting naturally, you know, to get to offsetting, you have to understand your environmental impact through measuring the environmental impact. It is um, providing an opportunity to get more understanding of your environmental impact. And we see that um, people change their behavior as a result of having that understanding. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, and then I wanted to talk about, we looked here at businesses on both sides of the spectrum. So we looked at British Airways, a huge airline, and I know that Climate Care has been talking with airlines about offering um, offsets in the price of tickets as as well. But here at ED, we're coming at this as a SME that's outside of the, the transport space. So for businesses like that, um, that are listening, um, yeah. If you could talk us through like what the process is like of offsetting and what the what what the benefits of doing that are when you might feel that you're a bit too small or or not in the right field to make a difference. Whatever size of organisation you are, um, you inevitably have um, a carbon footprint, um, and there are always going to be unavoidable emissions um, until there are completely zero carbon alternatives. Hopefully, um, in the near future. Um, so the first thing to say about offsetting, which you know I mentioned just now, is that in order to get to the point of offsetting your emissions, you have to understand your environmental impact. And that gives you the opportunity to then manage that impact and reduce it at source over time. Um, and that's a big benefit um, that we see with our, with our SME clients, is that often they are... Um, uh, you know they're doing that for the first time, and, and that understanding is really helping to manage manage down their footprints. As I said, we're flying. Um, you know, the next, uh, the alternative to, or sorry, once you've decided to, um, you know, to carry out the activity, um, then the best thing you can do at the moment is to offset those emissions and take responsibility for them. Um, and for us, with our SME clients, we make that. A fairly simple process. It can be done actually online, depending on on the size of your of your footprint. Or we have a team who can help you to understand your footprint, to uh, you know, to deliver suggestions and a plan for reducing them, and then to help you through the offset process. So we try to make it as simple as possible, but give you the building blocks to reduce your your footprint as well. Um, once you've decided to offset. Um, that's great. We will um, 
essentially offset your emissions through um, carbon credits, which come from certified, third-party verified, um, high-quality projects. And we specialize in projects that not only reduce emissions, but they also deliver social impact against sustainable development goals. And that's another um, advantage of, um, of offsetting is that actually not only are you taking responsibility for your emissions, but you are um, you're supporting projects that are delivering social benefit as well. Um, and what we found, uh, again, any, for any organizations, large or small, is that um, taking the or making the commitment to offset then gives a good platform for engaging staff and also external stakeholders um, in your um, sort of environmental strategy and what your plans are to reduce that um, and also demonstrate your your commitment to potential new clients or potential um, employees as well. Mm -hmm. And then from your side of things, I just wanted to finish by asking there's a lot of calls being made for transport in particular to um to transform and that at the moment it hasn't done that that at the speed and scale needed to get rid of any residual emissions um yeah. as well so i wanted to get your views really on our our big companies actually driving this transformation and looking at offsets seriously like is what you're seeing going to be enough in your opinion um, well, I think you know, there's, there's kind of two parts to that. The, fir the first one is, are they, um, you know, are they innovating and reducing their emissions at source and finding new ways to decarbonize, um, decarbonize those those industries? Mm. Um, and I, I think, you know, from our experience, we are seeing a lot of um, a lot of activity and innovation. You know, particularly, we work with car companies, for example, who are really looking to transform. Um, transform you know, from petrol and, and diesel engines to electric um, mobility in a, in a pretty short space of time. Um, with aviation, uh, we're also seeing a lot of innovation and a lot of desire with our um, airline partners to transform, but technologically it's much more difficult than it is um, from ground. And I think that I think that they do hold the key. The, the aviation sector itself to um, you know transforming and decarbonizing but I think they also need help from from others and particularly for example you know there's fuel suppliers who um, you know at the moment obviously have been focusing on fossil fuels but are there alternative fuels and can the fuel industry um, help to deliver that innovation quicker um, and in collaboration with the industry um, what we're seeing from the offsetting side, obviously, you know, that transformation is going to take time. Um, and in the meantime, um, you know, offsetting um, is something uh, you know, that can be done to, to take some responsibility in, in the meantime for those residual emissions. Um, we're seeing um, a lot of work being done at industry level, aviation and the Corsia program, but, you know, that leaves... Um, you know, that leaves a lot of room for for, um, for additional action and ambition. So you know, we would call on um, call on the industry to to, pu to push harder, um, you know, and to do more. I think another interesting thing we've seen actually uh, as an example within the UK, the, the UK government is is currently 
um, has a consultation out about whether um, all transportation, but starting with aviation, should um, should provide the option for offsetting emissions from from those journeys. So um, we're seeing, you know, desire and interest at, at government level as well to um, to reduce emissions and to speed up the decarbonisation process. But there's no doubt aviation is one of the is one of the more challenging ones. Great, but at least I think we've covered a lot of ground there and talked about what's been, what's going on and what's to come from all angles as well. So thank you, Rob, for your insight today. Right, well, a big thanks to um, Rob and, of course, uh, Sarah for covering that interview while I was off powdering my nose. I don't, that's not a euphemism, is it? Apparently people do generally powder their nose, right? It means you've gone for a wee. Oh, OK, well, we'll go with that then. <laughs> um, great. Sarah, before we head to part three of this episode, um, I wanted to get your thoughts on the future of flight. It's what we discussed um, for the majority of this episode so far um, and everything from, you know, offsetting uh, to traveling less to, you know, completely new concepts of flying and, and the aircraft will be crying in, uh, flying in. Where do you see um, flying and aviation in around 20 years time? You know, when you book a holiday or a trip away, how do you see your travel taking place? I'm not a complete expert, obviously, on innovations, but just from re- reading about slow progress with um, electrifying mm. aircraft and with developing alternative fuels at scale enough to pilot, it's the, it's the size of the planes, isn't it, that, yeah. that is the problem. We have electric planes for, for two people, mm. but obviously we're not going to be sending these little <laughs> these little planes from London to New York to, to take people on their holidays. Um I think the future of flying for the average person is just going to be a lot more expensive, yeah. to be honest. Um, with the way that more and more governments are setting net zero policies and including international shipping and aviation in them, it talks about policies that will properly price carbon as being necess- necessary um, for meeting the Paris Agreement and just more and more research about how flights are divided up um, in, in that there was a recent report out something like one percent of the uk population is taking 25 percent of the flights so i think the future of flying is more expensive especially for those who fly all the time obviously for timelines of these innovations coming out things that i'm hearing from the experts that we are speaking to we're imagining first fully electric passenger plane by 2030 but that would only be to complete a flights such as for example London to Paris mm. it's not a solution to London to Hong Kong no exactly I, I think okay. I I think I agree with you as well like a yeah kind of carbon tax or a carbon levy on the on the top of normal costs of flying um I think will dissuade a lot of people probably not the one percent who um are accountable for that that kind of quarter of all flights there I think um income's not a massive problem for them it's fair to say um, and I think people also just choose, you know, more indigenous locations that they can access by by public transport without perhaps having to fly. I saw the um, <clears throat> I can't remember the name, but it's the German travel agents I think that did the whole. Oh, you could go to the Grand Canyon for X amount of euros, or and it was really kind of clever visuals of just a similar looking um, place within Germany that you yeah. can access for like ten euros on the train. So. I think we'll get there and people get dissuaded. And in fact, I'd, I'd suggest people listening to look up um, 1010 Climate Action, the, uh, the non-profit, the charity, if you haven't already. Um, they're announcing something quite interesting in a few weeks, which I'm, I don't think I'm at the liberty to discuss yet, um, around kind of 
travel options um, for holidays and it's got a big business implication on it. I think it's really interesting and uh, I think they're looking for a few businesses to, to sign up and take the leap of faith on, on that, so to speak. So do check them out. Uh, but we're for a quick break right now. Um, so join us for our third and final part. It's not about aviation, it's about plastics. Um, basically, join me for the third and final part where I head to the V&A Museum and I look through a big see-through box. So hello and welcome back to the third and final part of this episode of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. So we started this episode at the Saatchi Gallery in London um, to look at how a huge corporate was using kind of visuals and, and presentations to bring to life a concept on sustainability. Um, and to finish this episode, we're going to do pretty much exactly the same. Um, in September 2018, uh, software firm SAP unveiled plans to collect live data from supply chains as part of an initiative it called the Plastics Cloud, which is a pilot aimed at improving how corporates purchase and recycle plastics. Um, the concept it uses machine learning to forecast the trends of purchasing and recycling habits around plastics, and then it it basically stems from this whole confusion amongst corporates and consumers as to what type of plastics they can buy and what, how that can be recycled. It basically just allows everyone, allows everyone to reduce their plastic waste output um, by highlighting demand for certain types of plastics. Obviously, we've had this big confusion over around uh, bio-based and plant-based plastics and can they be traditionally composted recycled and, you know, oxy-based plastics have this stigma attached to them as, as well. This kind of just aims to cut through all that complexity. At the London Design Festival uh, this year, so a few weeks ago now, um, SAP, in collaboration with architect Sam Jacob, showcased an installation in the grand entrance of the Victoria and Albert Museum, uh, which explores the role and design of technology in reducing ocean plastics. This project aligns with what they call phase 2.0 um, of the plastics cloud. And I was invited to the museum to see the installation and find out why SAP had gone down this route. Um, and basically you walk through this door, you see this big see-through box and it takes you on a visual journey of plastics in the ocean. Uh, which I explain in the episode, which I explain in the interview. Following that, I then managed to catch up with uh, Stephen Jameson, the head of sustainable business innovation at SAP, to find out more about the plastics cloud. So, uh, enjoy me getting very much lost at the museum, and then enjoy this chat uh, with SAP. I am now currently standing at the main entrance at the V&A Museum, and I'm under a massive glass box. Um, and I look up, I can see uh, CGI images of fish uh, and different types of sea life all just floating around. And I knew I was in the right place, but I didn't quite know what I was looking at. I, I checked my notes, I, I checked the time to make sure I was, I was here for the right installation. And when I looked up again, the, the fish had become swarmed by pieces of single-use plastic. The images on the box had changed, and I've since been told it was to highlight uh, the, the transformation of the oceans from around 1950 when, when plastic was just about to become you know this this big next material to 2050 where the Ellen MacArthur Foundation has warned that there could be more plastic in the ocean than fish by weight. And so now I'm about to 
head off into the museum, provided I don't get lost, and sit down with some of the people behind this installation. Um, I'm going to be talking to the sustainability lead at SAP uh, to hear why the group partnered with architect Sam Jacob on this impressive installation. So Stephen uh, Jameson, the Head of Sustainable Business Innovation at SAP, uh, joins me now. Um, he is also acts as the Global Lead for Sustainability and Ethics within the software giant's Global Customer Office. So uh, Stephen, thank you so much for inviting me down to the VNA today. Thank you for coming. Pleasure to have you. Great. And so SAP, for, for those who are listening that don't know, I, I believe it's you run 77% of the world's transactions. Um, and last September, you unveiled plans to um, collect live data from supply chains as part of this plastics cloud pilot, which aimed to improve the, the procurement and recyclability of, of plastics, which is a huge issue, yeah. as we all know. Um, and we'll touch on the cloud soon, but I suppose a good place to start is, is why I have been invited down to the, to the V&A uh, Museum today for the London uh, Design Festival. Yes. So, yeah, so, um, and thanks for coming again. So we um, have been working on this topic now, uh, you know, really full time for about the last 18 months or so. And um, we, we started a collaboration with the London Design Festival last year where we sort of originally launched the, the Plastics Cloud. And I think what we wanted to do this year was really to start to, you know, challenge the whole design community first off. You know, we have half a million visitors uh, will come through this uh, exhibition through the course of this next week or so. And, you know, we saw that as a really um, good opportunity to help um, provoke thought thinking and provoke sort of a new conversation about the, the plastics issue and the role of design within that. Um, I think what is true and I think what people will recognise is that the plastics challenge is really a system challenge. Um, you know, and it's about how do you get multiple actors from um, people that might traditionally be competitors to work together and more collaboratively in order to drive the right innovations um, to, to create the right solutions. And um, what we're trying to do with this exhibit, first and foremost, is to kind of create that moment where, you know, the design community really have a chance to be, you know, stopped in their tracks and forced to reflect on what is actually happening around them. And so, you know, the first uh, part of the exhibit is this glass cube, if you like, which um, uh, has almost an infinite kind of feel to it. Um, and it. And it demonstrates what happens um, from the point of, say, 1950, when, um, you know, plastic was sort of early in its life and sort of pre-mass market. And it rolls through to 2050, where Nana MacArthur predicts there'll be more plastic than sea life and you can see the you know in the kind of the animation uh, and the sort of seascape above you through the exhibit a real um, really impactful story that, that tells uh, and we hope to kind of create a bit of a moment for people then when you go upstairs uh, directly above the exhibit in the ceramics gallery uh, we've arranged eight uh, objects those eight objects are um, replicas of existing objects from the ceramics gallery. So we've got, you know, an artifact from a water vessel from 11th century China that we've um, recreated, you know, using uh, coconut husks and um, uh, a manufacturing process that is more closely associated with carbon fibre. 
but instead of carbon fibre using coconut husks, and we're able to create quite beautiful artefacts through this. So we wanted to um, not just sort of raise the subject and the kind of the, the, sh the shock, if you like, of, of the challenge, but stimulate very practical thinking around what's possible and, and the sorts of design considerations that are possible through this journey of these eight artefacts. So it's not only just the, the public awareness of people who actually go through and experience the installation, but that, that whole rethinking the design process as well is, is something that could probably be applied to the, to the business community as well? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that, this is exactly it. And I, and I think, um, you know, the, the, this comes down to another interaction between the public community and the business community. And, you know, I think that we have an opportunity over this next seven days to really help um, move forward some of the thinking, move forward some of the debate, some of the conversation, um, maybe get out of some of the more sort of tactical um, conversations about, um, you know, different types of cups and straws and those sorts of things and really think about the overall system challenges that need to be addressed and working internationally and multinationally across multiple industries in order to create those solutions. Great. And yeah, plastic is a very visceral, visual um, topic that people, you know, have had a lot of em emotive conversations around in the last kind of two years since the whole blue planet effect. Um, but but one thing that's less less visual and perhaps a bit harder for, for the public and businesses to get their heads around is, is that role of the cloud and, and big data and SAP are doing something quite innovative with the with the plastics cloud. I remember covering the story on, on ED uh, last September and it garnered a lot of interest amongst our readers. So it'd probably be a good stage to discuss, you know, in, kind of very layman's terms, what the, the plastics cloud is and what it aims to do and, and where you're at right now with it. Yeah, sure. So, um, and it probably helps if I just kind of quickly recap on the journey we've been on. So, you know, in May last year, we convened um, many of our biggest customers, you know, the likes of um, Coca-Cola, um, uh, Procter & Gamble, Unilever. Uh, we got together. Uh, a number of others, and we we, we, we we sat down and we said, look, the reality is, is um, we have this challenge, um, uh, you know, systems, technology have a fundamental role to play in terms of moving materials from, you know, source to consumption, um, but we must be able to do more. We've got such tremendous capabilities with machine learning, IoT, big data, that there must be ways that we can use that new capability and ways to actually help tackle some of these crises. And so um, three days of, 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 of collaboration and innovation and design thinking and coming up with new solutions and we, we had many, many different concepts. What, what was absolutely um, common to everything we were doing was this sort of need for, for data at the heart of this, the need for data to be able to create the new collaborations needed to be able to understand the impact of decisions, to be able to help people to innovate, to kind of spark new ideas. All of this required data in some way. So really the, the initial launch of the Plastics Cloud was a kind of a call to the marketplace to say, look, we need to be, get serious now about this. We can no longer sort of work tactically individually. We need to be working collaboratively and data is the key. So let's start working out how we can pull that data and how we can make best use of it. And, and wind forwards 12 months and we're now getting to some really kind of crystal clear um, um, building blocks of where this needs to go in order to be able to create real solutions. Um, so the first 
building block, if you like, uh, that we are announcing today is um, really what we're, we're, we're framing to as uh, enabling a secondary material marketplace, um, for want of a better term. So using our SAP Ariva network, which is already um, uh, used around the world by you know, millions of businesses uh, for traditional sort of procurement type transactions. Um, and we are looking to leverage that existing network and extend it to be able to create a marketplace for recycled materials. Um, so what we're doing is we're working with um, partners like Ocean Cycle uh, and Bantam, um, you know, certifiers who are able to certify supply chains for um, uh, uh, you know, legitimate uh, ocean plastic sourcing, for example, um, and then aggregators like Bantam who are able to bring recycled PET, for example, clearly to the marketplace in a predictable way. And helping to establish those um, nodes, if you like, on a network and, and, and to really facilitate the connection of those sorts of organizations to help drive massive scale. Uh, if you look at the commitments that many of the big brands are making, um, you know, we need to see a huge step change in the, both the recycle rate, uh, but also in terms of the materials that are already out there that need to be repurposed back into the supply chain. And the way we're, we're hoping, to, well, we, the way we are proposing to do that is through um, this marketplace, you know, digitalize that capability to help connect the people that are willing to bring that material to the marketplace and the people that really need it um, in the existing supply chains. And I think it's fair to say that, certainly on a personal level, there's a, a bit of a lack of trust around, around data and, and, and the risks associated with it. And in a business sphere, I find it quite interesting that the stuff we write about when it comes to uh, digitization and digitalization is it's all this exciting innovation and businesses seem really willing to form these collaborative partnerships that you mentioned. But um, there must be some challenges around, I don't know, I suppose, is there just a trust issue around around data, even though it's quite clear that it's needed for better management of supply chains? I think, I think, it, I think it depends on, on the context, um, you know, at the end of the day. And, um, and I think it also depends on whether we're talking about a consumer context or, mm. or, or not. And I think what's, what's really interesting about the waste system is that, um, you know, pe people are, um, you know, willing to sort of dispose of, a, of an item and then sort of not know what happens to it at that point. Mm. And so the logic follows that, well, if you're, if you're happy to dispose of, of, of a cup or of a bottle or something, then you should also be happy to dispose of the data that's associated with it. So I don't really see kind of principally why there's any kind of issue with kind of the, the, the tracking and management of that post-consumer. And I think it can only create, you know, tra that transparency create, can cre only create good. It can only help stimulate investment. Uh, one of the key things that we're looking to do through this is make that network as transparent as possible. Make sure that, you know, the investors that can invest in new infrastructure, the waste managers that can, um, that can invest that they're able to put that right investment in the right places. And the challenge at the moment in that world is not um, a lack of capital, it's not a lack of technology necessarily, although clearly that's partly the issue. It's an issue of predictability. You know, there's a great saying, which is investment follows data. Really good points, actually, and, and not one I'd uh, particularly thought of. And I suppose just to uh, finish, Stephen, just more broadly around the role of technology and, and software, 
um, in, to enable businesses and empower them to make kind of more informed decisions, both on the kind of procurement um, and use of raw materials. It's it's an exciting time in in that sense, and there's a very but there's a very small window to combat some of the wider mega trends associated with climate change and sustainability. So, so what are the kind of immediate barriers you feel that, that technology, and I appreciate that's quite a broad term of technology, but what are the kind of barriers you feel that need to overcome for businesses to be able to take more leaps of faith with, with pilots that revolve around technology? Yeah, so I think, you know, there's some very practical things. And I think complexity is the first and most obvious word you would, you would hear when you speak to businesses that are tackling these challenges. Um, you know, we're talking about supply chains that have grown up over decades um, and have become very mature and very well established, and supply chains that will involve potentially dozens of parties. Um, you know, I think when we did the original challenge, we counted, you know, typically 18 steps from, you know, an oil well through to you know, a disposal into a landfill um, for a typical, say, water bottle. And so um, there, is, there, there is, you know, tremendous... Um, complexity therefore within that system um, but at the same time there's tremendous opportunity for us to be able to re re rework some of that now and, and to really drive the the traceability the kind of the, the lineage the intelligence to know um, you know we haven't just bought a you know if I'm a CPG company producing a plastic bottle to bottle a drink um, you know, it might have been acceptable a few years ago for me to know that I had a bottle that was plastic, but not necessarily whether it was recyclable plastic. Um, now, with data and technology, we have the opportunity to make, to drive much more intelligence into that process and to be able to help um, businesses to not just know that that is plastic, but to know that that is, you know, PET, a certain polymer, it's come from this supply source and by the way, it's going to this market, this market has got this infrastructure, and able to see much more end-to-end um, -end the, the implication for decisions. But then also modelling into that the obligations that need to be paid, the taxations that need to be paid, you know, PRN, for example. Um, these are all numbers that are going to change massively over the next um, five, five, five years or so. And so being able to kind of model that in the context of the supply chain is all critical for business to be able to continue doing business um, in the years to come and so um, so yeah there is a there is a challenge in that complexity complexity but equally it's eminently solvable and um, you know we're really excited to be leading the way on that great stuff and um, yeah the, I think the adage is you, you can't uh, manage what you can't measure so it's great to see that technology is really enabling businesses to get more transparent supply chains and the impact it's going to have around plastic use so um, it's been a pleasure to speak to you today, Stephen, but um, I got lost in the medieval section earlier, so I'm going to go and find my way back there and, and have a rest of a look around, but um, thank you for having me. Good luck. Thank you. So we're just about out of time for today's episode. I hope you listening enjoyed it, um, and do let us know in the comments if you have a view on what the future of flying looks like for you. We'll be back soon, um, or at least Sarah will be back soon, as um, you're going to be bringing us, a, I think, a solo episode from uh, HP Factory in Glasgow. Yes. Um, do you want to give us a little teaser for that without spoiling the, the chunk of it? Oh, yeah. Well, without, without spoiling it, it's sort of a look under the lid of what is actually happening to... I don't want to say e-waste, because so little of it actually gets wasted um, from businesses. 
Okay, well, there you go. Um, not an e-waste episode about <laughs> e-waste. Interesting. And a normal reminder for everyone that uh, ED podcast episodes can be listened to via iTunes, Spotify, or by searching the ED website. If you haven't already, do subscribe to this podcast so you receive each episode hot off the press. But until next time, it's a goodbye from Sarah. Goodbye. And a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.